Hey, everybody, welcome back. We're ready to get into it today. And uh, our uh, guest is somebody who is the leading Roswell expert. Now, we're not going to just tell the story of Roswell, beat it to death. That's one of his books right there, among many. I found 10 just going online, Jay. Uh, he's I know got a he's few. a seven-time best-selling author as well. But we want to get some info that a lot of people don't know. And we want to clarify some of the myths. There's a lot of things people say, oh, I heard Roswell was this. I heard this happen. What's real and what's not? And we want to do that in a concise, quick way without beating a dead horse, but give you guys some cool new info. And I, I think that's going to work out. Also, uh, we'll get his opinion on crazy balloon flap. Again, don't want to beat this thing to death. I'm pretty much sick of hearing about spy balloons and UFOs in our sky. That but you got to ask him. You got to ask him. Yeah, right? I guess yeah. it's relevant. We're going to ask. I'm just, we beat it to death pretty good the other day. But uh, for all of our uh, our newfound listeners, we've had a huge uptick in uh, in following right now. So hi everybody, this is uh, this is UAP Studies podcast. And again, all of our channels: YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Twitter. Uh, where else are we at? TikTok. On Next UAP. Network now. Yeah, on X Network. Yeah. On Network.com slash UAP Studies podcast, and of course UAP Studies podcast.com. Having said all that, please like and subscribe. Let's get into it, brother. We got Donald Schmidt on the show. Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of UAP Studies Podcast. My name is Louis Borges. Joining me as always, my good friend, Mr. Jason Gilmet. How you doing? I'm I'm doing good. It's been a heck of a week. I've been looking forward to talking with Don uh, all week, and this has been uh, something that we've talked about for, for quite some time, so having him on today is going to be awesome. Absolutely. And again, our mission statement on this show is bringing you the most informed and most reputable people on the topic. They've been doing this for decades and studying and have far more knowledge than we do. But we want to give our audience that uh, that knowledge in a digestible little snippet. And uh, again, super excited about today's guest. Uh, this gentleman is a researcher, a TV presenter, a seven-time best-selling author. Some of his books include uh, UFO Crash at Roswell, UFO Secrets, uh, Inside Wright Patterson, Witness to Roswell, uh, Inside the Real Area 51. Uh, he uh, served as a director of special Inve investigations for the J. Allen Center for UFO Studies, also known as CUFOS, and uh, he's a founder and board advisor of the International uh, UFO Museum and Research Center, which is in Roswell, New Mexico. So uh, the most uh, probably learned gentleman on the Roswell topic, we're going to pick his brain, but a warm welcome to the show, Mr. Donald Raymond Schmidt. Well, thank you for having me, both of you. So uh, I just do a, a quick correction. It's the J. Allen Hynek. My apologies. My apologies. Yeah. The eminent astrophysicist. Yes. Who was consultant to the Air Force for 20 years. And then he founded the center. And with the museum now in Roswell, my, my, now, my new official title is lead investigator. Very good. So uh, I, I will accept that. So. Yeah. Congratulations. So tell us a little bit about yourself pre-UFO interest, kind of what got you into it. You know, we, we usually know most of the big things about our guests, but we like to kind of hear what uh, their personal life was like and what led them down this path. So what's, well, uh, what got uh, you into it? I, of all things, it was the, uh, the Kennedy assassination. And I was a young boy that particular weekend and how we had all been sent home from school. 
And uh, my father was away on business. So there I sat with my mother, just glued to the television for three solid days, you know, just uh, in awe of uh, not so much the president being assassinated, but how it was being covered, how it was being presented. And see the reaction on my mother. And then a few years later, and because I was already an avid reader, even at the age of six, when I would make up my Christmas list for Santa, I would put down all these book titles. I wasn't interested in toys. I, I, I wanted books on history, on science, that type of thing. And I had um, wandered off into the book section of a department store. And there was a book that was using the exact same words in defining the then released Warren report on the Kennedy assassination, the official investigation, and the words whitewash and cover up. But it wasn't a book on the assassination. It was a book entitled Flying Saucers Serious Business. And I paged through it and it was one particular chapter entitled Who's Driving? And as I quickly peruse, you know, those accounts, those anecdotes, I had to have that book. Because I thought, my God, if this is, if this is happening, we're talking the biggest story, one of the biggest stories of all time. And I couldn't get my, my, my next UFO book fast enough, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one. And before you know it, right through college, I was going into field investigative training with the Area Phenomena Research Organization. And then after college, after I was assigned a number of case investigations and a number of my reports came across the very desk of J. Allen Hynek. And I happened to live two hours just north of Hynek where he resided in Evanston. He was head of the astronomy department at Northwestern University at that time. And he invited me to come down, he wanted to meet. And the next thing I know, I was getting phone calls from the man himself. Don, I'd like you to look into this case. I, I, we have a report from this area that, would you you'll look into it for us? And um, I would become one of his special investigators. And I worked with him in the field for the next uh, eight years before he passed away. And so I could not have had a better teacher, mentor, uh, scientific, uh, as far as a director, but also a friend. And I, I find myself so often going, uh, thinking presently, now, what would Alan say, Dr. Heineck? What, what, what would Alan do? And what we were not aware of was the fact that he was also looking into Roswell before he died. We found all types of handwritten notes that he was interviewing witnesses. And this needs to be followed up on. This needs to be investigated. And albeit posthumously, the fact that once we, as skeptics, decided to actually make that first trip down to New Mexico, fully confident that we would wrap this up in a single weekend. And little we, did we know that there was J. Allen Heine kind of whispering in my ear, see it through. There's much more to this than you think there is. And 
as we have demonstrated here, it is now over 30 years later. And for having interviewed over 600 witnesses, either directly or indirectly involved, I think we've, we've, we clearly have shown that uh, something truly extraordinary crashed back in 1947. And it's become the granddaddy of all UFO cases as a result. Right. And we've, we've heard of other crash retrievals from the United States at different times throughout uh, history. So, you know, we know that there's, there's some crafts to it. I, I'm not sure what, um, you know, your thoughts are on Bob Lazar, but I, I'm a huge believer in his story. And when he said that the mm -hmm. U.S. government had nine crafts in their possession, that is huge. That is, uh, you know, it's one thing having one or two crafts, but having nine uh, and none of them look the same. You know, when you hear about the Roswell crash, it's not that far out to, to think that maybe that's when we started retrieving these things seriously and looking at them as machines. Uh, but yeah, your, your book, I mean, I got it right here. Uh, the first crash at Roswell, yes. Yeah. And then it became the movie. It became the movie, right. Yeah. And I mean, the investigation into this, like how, was there a point that like, you were absolutely convinced throughout the investigation that this was there was something actually there worth investigating. Like there must've been a trigger point where you like, discovered something new that led you down the rabbit hole. Do, do you remember what that was? There were two things. Interviewing the first hand witnesses to the wreckage, whether it was military or civilian. Right. They described it identically and they all described it in extraordinary terms that it possessed perfect memory that it was practically, you know, unbreakable. They were describing what would turn out to be fiber optics, for example. They were describing eye beams with, you know, strange symbology, hieroglyphic-like symbols that ran the length of each piece. And then, secondly, the reluctant witnesses, and they typically were military officers with pensions, and uh, you know, security oaths at stake, and the fact that these were most likely the reluctant witnesses who would always tell us, we can't talk about that. Uh, an example would be Lieutenant Colonel Edwin Easley, who was the provost marshal at Roswell in 1947. And he stated over and over again, I can't talk about this. I'm still sworn to secrecy. Now mind you, this is 43 years after the fact. And he is still unequivocally stating, I cannot talk about this. And so why or what is still so highly classified after all that time that remains taboo, remains under the tightest as far as security. And so it just whets your appetite all the more. You become all the more intrigued to find out what could it possibly be. And that's when we started to also explore all the alternative explanations, even all the way up to a Japanese atomic bomb. We were going for broke. We were just putting everything and anything on the table. And it still always came back to, but we can rule this out. We can eliminate this. We can disqualify that. And the one thing that always stood out were the eyewitness testimonies, right to the very deathbeds. 
stating that it was a flying saucer, that it was something manufactured off the earth. And for that same reason then, if I accept Roswell, where I went from a full skeptic to now where I'm 99.9% .9 convinced, it's, it's a big difference than believing. You know, I've, you know, I've taken this as far as I can, and now I accept almost without a shadow of a doubt that it did happen. But then I have to also accept it makes everything else possible. I just can't rule out another crash, another event, because Roswell makes everything else possible. Yeah, right. Chris. One of the things I find fascinating is, you know, the stories of entities that were recovered, uh, mm -hmm. you know, subsequent mm -hmm. autopsy videos. I've even seen a video with supposedly an alien that they were trying to communicate with. And what are your, again, it's our viewers want to know all the, uh, all the old cliche stuff as well too, right? But what are right. your thoughts on that? Was there an ET creature? Did we, you know, work with this thing? Did we just test it and torture it to death? Like what happened? There were three distinct sites related to this one event, this one craft, this one object. There was a debris field, which we have now, uh, to date, we've had five archeological digs searching for remnants, searching for physical evidence. We confirmed, for example, that there was a 10 foot wide, about 200 foot long gouge where something had impacted and skipped across the desert floor for, for some uh, distance. And then it was a secondary body site about two and a half miles east, southeast of that location where two bodies were recovered whether they had been ejected due to the percussion of the explosion, uh, the decompression, or they had ejected, who, who can say it? But nonetheless, there were two bodies at that location. And then along that same trajectory route, there were another three bodies plus a survivor and the remains of a pod, a capsule, about the size of a Volkswagen Beetle, egg-shaped. And this was about 35 miles north of Roswell. So along that same trajectory line, a debris field, a secondary body site, and then a final impact point. So we have first-hand witnesses, both military and civilian, to not only the bodies, but also the survivor. We have witnesses at the site. We have witnesses at the B-29 hangar. It was called P-3 back in 1947. It's now known as Building 84. We have witnesses at the base hospital who also saw the survivor. And then we have the testimony of a retired colonel, he was a triple ace in World War II, Marion Magruder, who independently told his five sons how he was part of the War College class of 47-48. And they were put on assignment at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Wright Field slash Wright-Patterson, based on all the eyewitness accounts became the final depository where all the wreckage, where the bodies, and the survivor were taken to Dayton, Ohio. So it was a predecessor to Area 51, 
51 didn't come into existence until 1955, so eight years later. So right field, right Patterson was the most advanced uh, foreign technology division. They did all the reverse engineering of captured weaponry and armory after World War II, for example. It was, if, if we came into possession of anything foreign, and in this case, truly foreign, that's where it would have been sent. Well, anyway, we confirmed that Zabruder, or uh, Magruder, I was talking about Kennedy, and I'm talking about the Zabruder film, sorry. <laughs> but Magruder was assigned, we have the documents, April of 48 to Wright Pat in Dayton, Ohio. Well, he would have told his sons that they were shown the wreckage from Roswell, and they were allowed to handle it. And it's memory qualities that no matter how you bent it, no matter how you creased it or folded it up or crumbled it up, every time you placed it down, it would unravel and assume its original shape and size right before your eyes. But then he described how we were then taken into another room and the lights came on. And there within a glass room was something that clearly was not human. And we were informed it was the lone survivor from Roswell. And he described the pity that he felt that we were treating it like a guinea pig. Yeah. And that later he would hear that it died due to just all of the testing. That obviously we took it, it was a captive. We took it into our possession and we're treating it like a lab animal. And I guess that's human nature and something that I would think even to this day, that's precisely what we would do. But the point being that for having the high caliber, the high level of witnesses that we have, you know, received testimonies from, I have no doubt that there, there was a survivor. There was a lone survivor recovered at Roswell. Hmm. Yeah. And I'm excited from that. I, I was hoping that was the answer because it's very cool. It's plausible. And, you know, to throw out that possibility means you got to throw out all these people's testimony that I, you know, heard of and read as well. So, so thank you for that. Well, and I, and you all, you both understand. I mean, I can go on because the details, the number of witnesses that I have to encapsulate, it's almost like creating a composite of just multiple characters and you have to you know contrive it all into one individual yeah. so it's 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 much more involved as i'm sure you you both you know you can imagine but nonetheless i'm still trying to summarize and and still be as precise and to the point as it can be yeah we appreciate that and we only have an hour-long program too we don't want to beat any one topic to death but that was perfect that's uh yeah, that quenches my curiosity on that so well ross Excellent. I'm yeah. happy. Roswell has always been an interesting case. I mean, from the from the onset, I mean, it was the first time that we had the government actually come out the, within, you know, a few hours of the crash saying that the, there's possible UFO crash in the desert of New Mexico. Then the next day they recanted it and said, no, no, it wasn't. It, uh, it was just a mistake. It was a weather balloon. But, but, but actually, it wasn't just a few hours after they learned of the crash. Um, the, the rancher, the ranch foreman who first discovered 
this debris field that covered an area of almost a mile long. That's a tremendous amount of wreckage of, of material. And it's one of the reasons that as we were tracked down the people who were involved in the recovery operation, we've been told that there were 50 to 60 men who were out there for three full days loading up crate after crate after crate. And we even tracked down the drivers of the trucks who were transporting the wreckage back down to Roswell and then returning with another empty truck to pick up another load. The point I'm making is that the rancher, he made the long trek into Roswell. It was a 75 mile, hour, a mile drive back at that time. Doesn't sound like much today, but back then, many of the roads were just dirt pack. Uh, rubber tires were at a premium. Uh, you risk breakdown out in the middle of nowhere. So he had to make the effort and he drove all the way to Roswell. Now he did not go to the military base he went to the sheriff's office. By the time the military became involved, and it was important enough that they alerted the very base commander, Colonel William Blanchard, about the incident. So in other words, it keeps going up in importance, hour after hour after hour. And Blanchard, after he has dispatched, not a couple of enlisted men to follow the rancher back and check it out. No, he sends out the two head of intelligence, Major Jesse Marcel and Captain Sheridan Cabot, the head of counterintelligence in the event it's something foreign. Also demonstrating that they can't recognize this wreckage. Nothing's been reported missing. They haven't been put on alert as to any down aircraft or any tests that have gone off course. It's a 4th of July weekend down here in America. It's, most of the men are home on leave with their families. And Blanchard, he calls up his boss and they in turn contact the Pentagon. And then it's General Clements McMullen who was deputy commander of strategic air command for the Air Force at that time. He calls up Blanchard's boss and has some of the wreckage brought in by the rancher flown to Washington. The point being Washington already has some of the actual wreckage in hand by late Sunday, July 6th. The press release to clearly show that this was not just some overreaction or a knee jerk response on the part of Roswell. It doesn't go out until Tuesday, July 8th. So they had a full day and a half to decide what to do about this. And they decided, like the proverbial straw man, first you build it up, then you tear it down. Brazil, the rancher, had gone to the sheriff. He had already talked to the press. They couldn't deny that nothing crashed, that nothing happened. So they first, it's a flying saucer. And then within five hours, it slowly evolves into a weather balloon with a radar reflector kite. And then they had that press conference late that afternoon at Fort Worth, Texas. And they had Marcel pose with the weather balloon on the floor in front of him and the press accepted it. They got away with it. And that's all they were hoping to accomplish. You know, boy, we, we really bit the bullet on that one, but it worked, it worked. 
Wow. Well, it worked. It worked for a long time until you guys uncovered it. Uh, you know, and- well, until Marcel went public. Marcel was diagnosed with uh, terminal emphysema, and in 1978, when he realized they're not going to come out with the truth, so he did, and that's when he went public. And I love the quote, and I, I use it all the time, where he stated, "Quote." Being from, now, this was the lead intelligence officer in the U.S. military at that time, in charge of the atomic bomb. They were the first atomic bomb squadron in the world at that time. And Marcel would state, "Quote: Being familiar with all materials, both foreign and domestic, this was nothing made on this earth." Yeah, you don't get any more profound than that. Yeah, nothing. And, and made the impact, the impact it's had on the family. We're gonna have Jesse Marcel the third, who is the grandson yes. on our show. Yes, and good friend. This story yes. never wavered, right? It was so important. It no. went from grandfather to father. No. There was diaries. They it's safeguarded dead. this because of the importance factor, and it. I'm sure it didn't do them any favors. I mean, you, you think this topic is stigmatic now? It was very stigmatic in the late '40s. People would think you're nuts talking he was about the old guy. Yeah, just the third grandfather was the patsy. He's ordered the pose with the fake, the phony weather balloon when he knows full well it's yeah. not what they recovered, what they brought back yeah. down to Roswell, and that he had to live with. And then his picture is plastered all over every major newspaper yeah. around the world. And uh, Jess Jr. and I'm sure the third will repeat this. His grandfather uh, was very bitter that. He only stayed in the military for two more years and uh, he would have easily gone on to become a, a general officer. And yet uh, you're, you're right. They were laughing behind his back. They were, you know, he came back to Roswell and nobody was even talking to him because they were ordered not to. They weren't supposed to say anything that would potentially, you know, re, you know raise his curiosity you know, you know what, what had happened while he was gone for those two days. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's been such a, you know, throughout history, everybody's had an experience with an encounter of a craft or military personnel that have had encounters on bases. It has been that sort of follow-up that they're mocked by their own peers for an incredible story that actually took place. These people are brave to come out, these, these men and women. Yes. And we say this all the time, it's the men and women in service that are coming forward and explaining to us that there's something there, there's something that they're experiencing as much as the general population is, that civilians are experiencing. And, you know, there's a common thread there. And like I said, my hat's off for anybody back in the day that had enough balls to come out and just say it like it was. Like now it's a little bit easier to do so. Yeah. The taboo has been lifted to a great degree with the congressional hearings here in Washington but to, that I can state that we can even document uh, the ridicule factor right back to Roswell. That's where it originated. The very general, his very office that they had the balloon press conference. He was on an El Paso radio station just a few days after. And he was asked by the host of the program, well, general, that explains Roswell, but isn't it true that there have been flying saucer, flying disc sightings in every state throughout America, to which the general very coyly responded, yes, yes, that is true. 
except for Kansas, which is a dry state. <laughs> they don't allow drinking. Yeah. Right. So for the first time suggesting that only those who over imbibe, those who drink, see such things. That's where it began. And yeah, it only in ancient grew. times. In ancient times, you know, even like the Egyptians and stuff, they would report fiery discs in the sky. And there's many anomalous things reported by very basic language. But I mean, you think about it, it's like they were describing some high tech, even though they were using basic language. But there was no ridicule because nobody had said that you're crazy if you think that there was no truth embargo, as Stephen Bassett likes to call it. Not a right. cover up, but a truth embargo, you know. Cover-ups are illegal and embargo is if you're already in power, you have every right to just withhold because you could say it's for national security. National security, right, right, right. Yeah. And, and the idea that that was one of the techniques, that was one of the manners by which they designed that not only would they explain away Roswell, they then put on balloon demonstrations, which we've also documented, all over America, where they invited the press to come in and film as they were showing that, now, it may not look like a balloon or a flying saucer here on the ground, but once it's airborne and due to the atmospheric pressure and the balloon can become elliptoid and it can reflect the sun and just like that, my God, it doesn't have wings, it doesn't have a tail, it's one of those flying discs. But then nobody asked the legitimate question, well, but Roswell was on the ground in front of them. It was something they could handle. It was nothing more than neoprene rubber and reflective foil and sticks and tape and string, as you are telling us, but that's not what the witnesses are stating. They're stating that it was something extraordinary. Hundred. At 10,000 feet up, yes, maybe, but not on the ground when even a five-year-old child would have been able to easily identify a weather balloon for what it was. Right, yeah, and it wouldn't point. take it wouldn't take 60 men two days or three days to you know build, days, but, right. yeah, to build. Stare at a light in the sky. Yeah, yeah. This <laughs> you know, justify that on paper. Yeah, yeah. makes no, no it, sense. It, no, and. And, and putting that all together and just the pieces of that puzzle and the, seeing the lack of contradiction and seeing that um, there's a, a, a wonderful, he's a good friend and writer and uh, John Custer Mellon. And he did a, a wonderful book on the atomic bomb. And when he was tracking down and talking to the crew, the pilots and crew of the Enola Gay and Boxcar, the two B-29s that dropped the, atomic bomb over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And he said to me, Don, be prepared because you, I can't tell you how often I've had servicemen, I've had retired officers tell me I was on one of those flights and they weren't. And I would say, but it doesn't disqualify the flight. It doesn't disqualify the act of what took place. That's, again, human nature. People like to be part of something. It may have been a flight mechanic, and it's, it's grown to the point that maybe he was in the bomb bay at some point, but nonetheless, I was on that plane, you know, that type of thing. It's like the what? fish story. It's bigger every time you tell it, right? You start off sweeping the floor, next thing you're flying the plane. Exactly. 
But that's been one of the amazing things with Roswell, which again, demonstrates the extraordinary uh, characteristic involved. Whether it's civilian, you're talking about people who are untrained, who maybe they wouldn't recognize a fuselage of a particular plane. They wouldn't recognize uh, the vacuum tubes and the wiring and the sheet metal and the pop rivets and that type of thing necessarily. But then to the highest level of the military, and I did a paper and I had a, a psychologist who approached me on one occasion. He said, Don, I was a total skeptic, but your paper convinced me because you demonstrated that whether it was an unwashed innocent child or a four-star general, they all reacted the same way. They all behaved in the same mannerism in dealing with this, that it was something profound. It was something they would never forget. It was again, something extraordinary. And that's where people who would claim to be part of a, a, a bombing rate, you know, a, you know a, a mission, that type of thing. Well, it's not extraordinary. They've done it before. Now, granted, this was with the atomic bomb, yes, but to deal with something off the planet, as Marcel described it, not made on this earth. How do you ever forget that? Yeah. And, when you... and as one witness said to us, it's the first thing I think of every morning when I get up. And it's the last thing I think of when I go to bed at night. Yeah, it, it changes people. You, you can see it in somebody's face when we, like even people we've talked to, I mean, it's just over Zoom, but you can see it in the person's face when they're absolutely convicted that, you know, that this really did happen to them, that they really witnessed right. these things. And, you know, somebody who's fibbing, somebody who's lying, like you get that sense that, you know, they might not be telling the truth. But all these people coming forward now, there's something to it. Like they wouldn't be jeopardizing their careers, the reputation, the mockery that comes with this. Uh, you know, it's a little bit more, like I said, better accepted these days than it has been in the past. But when you start hearing about other crashes in the past, uh, you know, because you've been focusing on Roswell, there's that uh, Brazil to Virginia case where there was a crash landing there as well. Mm -hmm. Supposedly entities as well were captured. You start seeing that. Yeah, you start seeing themes uh, almost reoccurring at different locations across the planet. But there's definitely visitations everywhere. And like, what are causing this? If, you know, do you have a theory about what's causing these crashes? This is obviously advanced technology. So there's something that's got to be bringing these things down. Well, we aren't, and we, we consider this very early on. Now, Marcel and Cabot, when they first arrived at the debris field, they immediately saw, or they concluded it was a mid-air explosion. It wasn't where it crashed, that it uh, had blown up at some altitude, and that's the reason that it fanned out with as much debris as it did for the, the length of uh, terrain that it did, okay? Right. Um, so then you consider, okay, what could have caused it to explode? Well, when, then when we confirmed there was a severe lightning storm that came off the Capitan Mountains that very evening in concern. And... Okay, was it struck by lightning? Well, but then if it's some advanced craft, because I've been in a, I've been in planes when they've been struck by lightning. Yeah, it's a it's a shock. I mean, the lights will flash off, and but 
the planes are designed to absorb, you know, and dissipate and are grounded in such a way that there have been, but 99% of the time, there's no damage. The flight resumes, thankfully. So then you start to question, okay, maybe this wasn't an actual spaceship. Maybe it was a, a scout craft, a reconnaissance craft, something that was designed to maneuver strictly in our atmosphere. And yet it had a reaction to a, a, a direct bolt of lightning that was fatal. We don't know. And none of the witnesses ever described that they came to any conclusion at that time. Well, then I had an engineer who happened to be a radar expert with the CIA in the past. And he suggested that we look into the radar systems at that time. And because the lobes of the radar from White Sands Proving Ground, Roswell, Kirtland Air Force Base, there was a, a, a radar facility in Vaughan, New Mexico, which is about 100 miles north of Roswell, and then Cannon Army Airfield, about an hour northeast of Roswell. What was interesting is that when you check, where did all the radar lobes intersect? In that very county, Lincoln County, where this incident happened. So then he suggested, well, well in, uh, radar was in its infancy at that time. So the frequencies were not consistent, that they were high, low, and each system had its own capacity and its own power. And as a result, it may have created a level of interference that may have thrown off their, their guidance system. Their, who, who can say, who can say? So I, I, I appreciate and I love that I can speculate. But I, can, but I can also say that to this day, we still have no idea what caused, caused the crash. Yeah, I've heard people hypothesize that it was shot down, but it seems like none of the action happened until, was it Matt Brazel, the gentleman who went to the sheriff? Right. Yeah. So right. none of it got escalated until he went and said, hey, there's like a mile worth of blown up stuff in my field. Nobody That's when things it. went. Nobody... So... Right, right. Yeah. And, and there too, you make an excellent point. If it was shot down, for, for having been to the actual debris field with all the archeological work and we have flown, it's high desert, it's wide open range. It's basically high, flat, open desert. And for having flown over the area in small planes and helicopters, one of the things that immediately you, you, you make note of is that once you are airborne, you can see for 50 miles yeah. with absolutely no obstruction whatsoever. The point being that if it was something we were involved with, that we brought down, or something that we had, we were testing and had gone off course, we would have, they would have retrieved it, they would have recovered it before even the rancher found it. Just they would have been, again, they would, area reconnaissance, they would have been right there. Nothing like now we're hearing, like with the down balloons, that the terrain is so rough and uh, that uh, in the upper in the north area, the, the Yukon, that um, it, it makes it almost impossible this time of year to have access. Well, why did you why did you bring it down in an area that you couldn't retrieve it in the first place? Yeah, when you had ample opportunity to bring it down somewhere else. So 
we're jumping ahead here, but it's like, sorry, you're lying. You're not being honest with the public. We're on to you because I can look back at Roswell and I can see that, for example, they were launching all the recovered German V2 rockets at the White Sands Proving Grounds. And they had a destruct mechanism installed in the nose cone because they had a Hermes rocket that went off course and it went across the border and it landed in Juarez, Mexico. Well, they were gonna make sure that never happened again, but the point being, they were right there to recover it. Right. Because they would have had hell to pay people being injured and crossing as far as, you know, uh, 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 as, as far as a, uh, the border, one country into another, that type of thing. So if they could do it back in 1947, we certainly can do it in 2023. Yeah. Right. So this excuse that, well, it's inaccessible. We couldn't get to it. I will add one thing to that, though. We all take for granted the fact that we know what Antarctica looks like underneath the ice. Mm -hmm. So that means we have imaging from satellites or whatever that can literally see through miles of ice. So I don't care how much snow they're saying fell. (laughs) It is not like Antarctica level snow. If they can see the islands of Antarctica, they can find a balloon with certain filters. Let's just just stop. I I wholeheartedly agree. And then one of the the uh, press conference at the Pentagon, they actually, it, it was uh, the press secretary was Kirby. They actually made the comment that it was heading towards the North Pole, which right. immediately brought in visions of Santa Claus. Right. So was it their inside, their little inside joke about all of this? It was heading towards the North Pole. And uh, we hope Mrs. Claus will understand, you know, type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Even uh, we brought this up a, a few podcasts, uh, but I, I keep mentioning this because this is important in the uh, briefing that, uh, you know, or new UAP uh, report that came out to Congress. It says specifically that the, there's been no mid-air collision between UAPs or UFOs and aircraft. As of late, there seems to be, uh, you know, a fear of these UAPs or whatever they are with aircraft that we're shooting them down in the middle of nowhere, Alaska and Yukon, where I don't think there's many planes flying in that area. No. So there's not that much risk. But supposedly now they pose such a high risk that we're going after these things in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and I find that funny because, you know, before in the report said, no, there's nothing to fear. There's been no collision between plane and, and these crafts, whatever they are, or air garbage, as we're recently being yeah. told, right? So that's a new thing, air garbage. Right. Yeah, our garbage is so good, it floats. Um, or uh, even we're mentioning, uh, there was an article that mentioned that these, uh, and Louis helped me out here, that the guys, the inflatable guys for a car oh, dealerships. Wacky waving, inflatable, arm flailing tube man or something like that, you know, the used car, great yeah. car. Yeah, yeah, so they're trying right. to say that this is what people are seeing as UFOs. And it's ridiculous. Like they're playing people off as as idiots, and most likely to, yeah, yeah. And the and, the fighter and, pilots too, right? The fighter pilots are the most trained professionals in the world, and they're making them sound like they're again fooled by seagulls or space garbage. Uh, it's ridiculous. And the point being, and I and as you mentioned before, we went on the air that in my own postings that I've been hammering home the fact that. Who's calling these UFOs? 
It's not the general public. Yeah. Yeah. No one is reporting UFOs in the midst of all this. It's the Pentagon. It's the mainstream media. This morning on the Sunday morning talk shows again, they kept talking about UFOs and the fact that we're shooting down UFOs. So why do they insist on using that terminology? And I've been going back and forth with some of the, the, the skeptics who are saying, well, it just proves how gullible the UFO community is. No, 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 no. It was like back in the 1950s, and it was Project Blue Book at that time, the third official investigation of the UFO phenomena. And they were going to do a test on mass hysteria. The idea that if we stage a UFO incident, that we can demonstrate that people overreact and they'll all be flooding switchboards, calling in all these UFO reports. So it was late during the night that they dropped these, these large sections of red reflective foil. And sure enough, the next morning, the phone calls were coming in throughout that entire region of Florida, but not a one was about a UFO. Every one of them was about a sheet of red foil. <laughs> the witnesses were describing exactly what they saw. Yeah. And the Air Force never publicized that. We had a, uh, it came out later with Captain Edward Ruppelt's book, Report on Unidentified Flying Objects. And he was the first director of Blue Book. And how he, they were told not to say a word about the fact that the Air Force proved exactly what, how legitimate eyewitnesses are that they report in they, they, they generally report what they are observing what they see yeah and these objects maneuver in ways that we know as humans we cannot reproduce this or would not survive these maneuvers when you hear about you know these you know they're going at you know, mock five and or ten doing right angles and then it's just crazy like we cannot survive that we know that we don't have the technology for that no, What's more impressive no, about these no. crafts is that they appear to be conscious. There seems to be like a consciousness to them. The way that they maneuver, the way that they fly, they're almost aware of everybody that's in a craft if they're looking at an airplane. Or I've had a, a lady here in Vancouver who reached out to me and she had an incident where a green orb fell in front of her windshield as she's driving about oh. 80 kilometers an hour. And it, it followed right. her perfectly backwards. It did a scan of the car and then went back up. And she was terrified. This was back in the 1970s. Yeah, so there's amazing stories like that where these things seem to be conscious, even the orbs and stuff. And there's there's something to it. The more we delve into this phenomenon, the more that we're trying to avoid the consciousness thing, but we can't. It seems to be evidence, right? So, yeah. And you make a wonderful point that anyone without a preconceived theory as to what we're dealing with who seriously looks into this, objectively, unbiasedly, just uh, let's go where the evidence takes us. They invariably come away. There's an actual phenomenon. There's something there. There's something uh, of an intelligence that is interacting within our environment, interacting where we track it on radar. We're able to clock it. It's, it's able to uh, submerge itself into bodies of water and even underwater travel at hundreds of knots an hour, that type of thing. And I will, you know, stay just by my many years experience with all the debunkers. They're not skeptics, they're debunkers. They have an agenda. 
they have a preconceived position and there isn't enough truth. There, there will never be enough evidence or facts that will ever change them because it's their world. It's what their mission in life, uh, for, if they're working for someone else or if it's just a case of what gives them a lot of notoriety because they, the media goes to them to get the alternative, get the opposing viewpoint. And again, it's a preconceived position. And yeah. if we were to have it, they'd be the first ones you know, crying foul against us. But they can do it. It's just that it's keep, a double standard. And keep in mind that most of them, the critics, don't do the amount of research and field work that you have done. Uh, even we're talking about Stanton Friedman, and you know he used to foam mm -hmm. at the mouth at, at his critics because they weren't out in the field. They would just grab his no, book, sure. read it. Oh, and sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then just try to destroy him in his theories. It's like he's actually doing field work. So when you're going on camera and they have you and then they have another person that's just a critic that hasn't done any of the, the, the work or research that you've done, like that's got to be insulting. I mean, it's not equal, equal opinions by any means. And I think that the media needs to stop doing that. Well, and it was one of the things that, Dr. Heineck also drilled into us that when it's your research, no one else can take it away from you. They right. may be able to parallel or counter it, but they better damn well have done it also in the field. Because if they've done it merely at their keyboard, it's not research. Yeah. They, they're going to cherry pick and they're going to uh, come up with a hypothesis and then set out to prove it. It, it, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. And yet too much of science is preconceived and then too much of science, they receive their grants and their special funding and they work for a corporation, they work for the government and they set out to prove something, whether they actually believe it or not. With us, we were skeptics and we set out to disprove something and we were wrong. We were wrong. The evidence took us in the direction that it provided us with the only possible explanation. And as Marcel again said, it was something not made on this earth. Right. Yeah. And when you hear cases about uh, Zamora in, in, you know, uh, was it 63 or something like that? When, 64, uh, Lonnie Zamora, April 64, the police uh, officer, right. Right. Excellent and it, case. Yeah, that was fairly close to Roswell, wasn't it? Like it was within... Well, uh, it, it was about... 250 miles to the Northwest. Um, I've been there many times to the actual uh, landing site. And I had spoke to Lonnie before he died. I had met with his wife, Mary, before she died. I know their daughter very well. And I met with some of the surviving police officers who were involved. I even had one of them sketch the size of, the, uh, they never talk about the footprints because as more people arrived on the scene, they obliterated some of the evidence. And some of the original evidence was there were actual footprints of, a of the size of a shoe of a 10-year-old that were still present. And to have them sketch exactly the shape of those footprints. Now, again, there were bodies. There were, there were two beings that were standing there. Yeah. And there were a lot of pictures taken. There was film that uh, was shot 
at the time. And Heineck was there as well, representing Project Blue Book. And it's the one case that truly turned him from a complete debunker to where, my God, as much as I tried, I could not prove the case was a hoax. Right. That and it was the, the craft was egg-shelled uh, or egg-shaped egg as well, right? right. Yeah. Yeah, that seems to be another occurring theme that we find. Like even we talked to Jacques Vallée and he's studied a case in, in 1943. I was, talking with, I was just at a meeting with Jacques this afternoon. So Yeah, and, and he had and like John an Burroughs avocado too. shape, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, egg shape. Yeah, so there seems to be yes. a theme there. Yeah. 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 Well, Kecksburg, uh, was, what do they say? Acorn. Acorn, Acorn yeah. yeah. But, still, but still cylindrical, cylindrical. So. Right. Yeah. Now, I know we got just a few minutes left here. I, I did want to address the stuff that's in the news as of late because we have to address it. I find that there's a lot of similarities between what the government just did to the 1947 case coming out saying they shot yeah. some UFOs and then going, we don't know what they are, but they're most likely balloons. Good a one. Picture, picture of a balloon. Yeah. Here yeah. it is, everybody. Yeah. Jesse Marcel all over again. Yeah, it's always balloons. Yeah. Always balloons. And to me, it was a total flashback. The idea that, well, the 509th bomb wing, the first atomic bomb sprouted in the world, we are still led to believe that, that back in 1947, they couldn't tell the difference between a balloon and something beyond the pale, something extraordinary. And we have the same thing today, that they still don't know what it is. They still... You know, they even the pilots they weren't able to make a positive identification before they launched their their sidewinder missiles and like the one over Lake Huron that it took two missiles to bring down one little balloon. You know that that type of thing. Yeah, and a million then, dollars worth. You add, in, you add into the the equation that um, there have been Russian spy balloons over Ukraine, and there were five of them shot down this past week, and. I thought to myself, well, they're launching expensive air-to-ground missiles, ICBMs, at these inexpensive little balloons. They're drawing their fire. It's like killing an ant with a, balloon, with a bullet. And it's like, don't we get it? I mean, are we still just that naive, that ignorant? And I think in many cases, they're still playing off of what they thought they've accomplished after the last 75 years, that we have fooled them all this time and they're gonna fall for it again. And much credit to you know programs like your own and the others that just keep reminding people. It's been a 75 year cover-up. What makes us believe that they're gonna roll over and tell us everything exactly. tomorrow? No. When has the government ever been forthcoming? Like a few days ago, we're all waiting with bated breath. What's the government going to say next? Give your head a shake. What are you doing? This if it doesn't benefit them. They wouldn't be telling us because we know they can just make it go away. That's the, the, the default reaction. Clean it up. Silence and all the witnesses. Don't say a word or you're going to jail forever. And now so, how convenient. We've, we've called off the recovery operation. So uh, again, how convenient. 
Yeah. We talked about that before the show, Jason. I said, you know, you call off a recovery effort when, you know, in a heartbreaking situation where there's an earthquake and buildings collapse, you've searched for two weeks, you know, there's no more survivors and it's sad and they call it off. This is supposed to be wreckage or a balloon in the snow. Why the hell would you ever shut it? Like, there's no reason to call off the search, but it's like we're used to seeing them do those things in other recovery expeditions and we're pretty much sheep for the most part but like think about that when would there ever be a time you'd have to cut like call it off or wait till the summer this so-called snow you're really worried about i mean it's it's not 10 feet of snow all year round we do live in canada not obviously the arctic most canadians live pretty close to the northern u.s border but for the vast majority it is uninhabitable but people live in alaska it's not 10 feet of snow every day and we have the tech so they would just say we can't find it yet but you know, springs around the corner. It just, it just seems like a narrative somebody's pushing. And the, the advantage they also have is that they have the willing accomplices in the media yeah. who also know nothing about this subject, and they get their marching orders, and they just, uh, you know, continue, continue the drumbeat of, uh, you know, what something is juxtaposed to what it truly is. I remember with Miles O'Brien. He used to be the uh, the science reporter with CNN years ago and we were filming in New Mexico and we happened to be at the old military the, uh, the Brazos Army Airfield and we were in the very hangar that everything had transited through building P3 B29 hangar and we were off mic and he, he, he says to me Don you know you spent a good part of your life working on this why are you doing this and I looked him square in the eye and I went because you won't he didn't talk to me the rest of the day because <laughs> I struck a nerve. Yeah, I yeah. struck a big nerve, but it was the truth. They, um, they are not assigned to get to the bottom of this. And if they want to stay connected to the powers that be, they, they listen, they follow, you know, the script. Yeah. And uh, it's sad that they should be the watchers at the gate. They're the, the ones that are supposed to be protecting us from the government and uh, they've been in bed with the government in many ways since 1947 since Roswell. Yeah. I find it very interesting that we've, we've come this far, uh, you know, with the subject of UAPs, UFOs, most people that we talk to, uh, even like some people have reached out to us recently that have never taken an interest in what Louie and I have been doing. All of a sudden they're like, Hey, actually, you know, it's really interesting what's happening right now. Or, uh, you know, everybody has a story. Either they've seen something themselves or their parents or grandparents seen something that was so profound that it became family legend. We all know that something's going on. It's, you know, that's why I think it's insulting that the government doesn't just come out and tell us like adults, hey, here's what we're dealing with. It could be a very complex issue because we talk to, you know, a lot of people have different varying uh, ideas of what it could be, extraterrestrial, interdimensional, uh, in, uh, extra-tempestrial. It could be time all travel. of the above. Right. Yeah, time travel could be all of the above. That might be the scary scenario that we're dealing with a multitude of different things. Okay, that's scary to deal with, but at least admit it to the public that there's more to reality than what we're being told there is. And that's really the the service that we're doing to our own population is not telling the reality of the universe that we are not alone, that there is some sort of visitation or, or monitoring of some sort. We're old enough and mature enough to handle it. 
but I, I think maybe some people don't like some people that are, you know, fundamentally stuck Jason, in their cage. Yeah. But Jason, you make an excellent point that what if it is something beyond our comprehension, which I am fully willing to accept? What, what if it is something interdimensional? How do you announce that to the public? And what if it indeed, as I remain convinced, it, it, it's still a cover-up of ignorance. Right. They don't know any more than we do. Yeah. And to plead ignorance for something that is able to fly through our airspace with total impunity, and they're able to pick up people right from their very homes, they're able to uh, you know, have near head-on collisions with both military and commercial aircraft, and the only thing they can do is file away reports. And as a result, the moment we start losing faith and the sense of well-being with our, not our government, but with our military who protect us within our borders. And if we start doubting, you know, that level of um, sovereignty and just security, and maybe they feel they can't afford to bring us in on that, the lack of control on their part. And I guess for that, I could excuse them, but I need, we need to hear that from them. Right. That there is, and I think we have in the last couple of years where they have acknowledged that there is a phenomena, that there is something there. Yeah. So we have made progress and Steve Bassett, I know he's, he's champing at the bit, but uh, he's earned that too. Yeah, we chat with him in a couple of weeks again. We're uh, always excited to get Steve's perspective. You just wind him up He's and a, away he goes. Dear friend, dear yeah. friend. And you talk about somebody who has not profited from this at all. Yeah. I mean, he's been he's lived on a shoestring just for decades now. And all he wants is, as we all do, the truth, whatever yeah. it happens to be. Because back in 47, it was unprecedented. But we've all grown up with the space race, and with Star Trek and Star Wars and everything else, if we haven't matured enough to handle it, then we never will. Then we never will. Yeah. We're ready. We're ready. Well said, Don. Uh, Louis, do you have any final questions for our guests Yeah, today? Don, where can people find what you're working on right now? If they want to follow you, buy your books, where can they learn more about Mr. Schmidt? Well, the, the books are probably all Roswell, but they're all available at Barnes & Noble and at Amazon and find bookstores and outlets around the world. Um, many of the books have been published in other languages as well. And uh, we have our museum in Roswell. We have our website there, International UFO Museum. And I, I predominantly am on Facebook because I love the, uh, the exchange as far as with people. And I can, it's, 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 it's timely, it's, it's instantaneous. It's uh, where something I can be on top of things on a moment to moment basis, so. Yeah, that's how, how, that's how we communicated. It was uh, re really good to uh, be able to reach out to you there. Uh, that was a good, uh, good form of communication for sure. Uh, Don, we appreciate your time on the podcast. We hope that you'll come back and be a guest again. Uh, it's been, like I said, an absolute pleasure to talk with you. We're big fans. And uh, we thank you for thank all you. the years of, of dedication and service that you've done for UFO research. Uh, there's not much money to be made in this, unfortunately. So people that, that write books we're and stuff like that is really research. for the love, right? Yeah. Research. And you, yeah. you two are both sharp gentlemen. I appreciate that. And you yeah, ask yeah. good questions 
and uh, you come across very well. So uh, I, I applaud both of you and wish you. you all the continuing success with your, your program as well. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you. And you're welcome here anytime. In fact, let's do this again soon because, oh, you, got uh, it. you know, an hour flies by and we can just barely graze the surface of this, but it's good chewing the fat That's on sure. uh, UFO Sunday with you, buddy.